Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. And can you dig it? Dig it in the morning, dig it in the evening. Welcome, all of you wet dreamers, to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wilds. Thank you all for tuning in, dropping in, dropping out, switching off, switching on, and exploding. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Okay, everyone. You really should know the order of service by now. At the time of recording, we are now day two into the biggest Beatle event of the year, aka the day-by-day streaming of Peter Jackson's The Beatles' Get Back on Disney+. Plus. Yesterday, I did my hot takes slash reactions to part one of the series, aka days one through seven, and as you may have guessed by the title today, I'm going to be doing the same, but for days eight through sixteen. Once again, there'll be no major spoilers in this episode. I'll mention a few songs here and there and maybe allude to a few quotes like last time. But nothing too detailed so that it would detract from your viewing experience if you haven't seen it already. In fairness though, since I don't just want to reiterate points that I made in the first part and the fact that a lot more happens in this one plot-wise, I will make reference to a little bit more of the meat, but it is all historical fact at this point and... Most of you out there are pretty big Beatle buffs, so I don't think I'll be treading on too many toes. And, in my own defence, I'd argue that all real Beatle fans would have done what I did when we found out about this film and booked all the time off work the day the dates were announced and cancelled all family plans regardless of their importance. So yeah, this is going to be a very off-the-cuff episode of Paul, I think another one, <laughs> two in a row without any housekeeping or plugs or any of that tosh. This is going to be more or less unscripted once more, and we'll just see how it goes. Okay, like last time, folks, here we go. Wish me luck. Okie dokie, everyone. The question here today, here today, is whether Peter Jackson has been able to keep it up or whether he's blown his load on part one. And with full confidence, I can say that Jackson has managed to maintain a mighty hard-on with this series. And right from the get-go, I can say that not only does this second episode live up to the lofty standards set by the first one, but it actually exceeds them. Yes, Mr. Jackson has proven that the first episode was not a fluke, and that, if anything, he's able to handle even more and do greater work with the material he has been given for this part too. Because, yeah. If the last episode was the hors d'oeuvres and the entree, this really is the main course of the sessions. And my God, is there a a lot of meat to chew through here, everyone. Part one clocked in around two hours, but this one is pushing three and a half. And you would think that that would mean possibly more dead air. But no, the film is as packed and bursting at the seams with toppermost of poppermost content. And again, in spite of that runtime, it never drags and never feels its length. Of course, the stuff at Twickenham is likely played down and meant to be a little bit slower and a little less enjoyable, but that's only one of the many ploys used by Jackson to reinforce just how excellent things got later on once they switched venues. But yeah, Jackson himself is still on top form here, and he really pushes how dynamic and how interesting he can make 
this footage. You know, not only does he continue to provide shots for things that you never even imagined existed, as well as continuing to use a greater variety of camera angles and camera movement than was ever on display in the previous documentary, but he also expands what supplementary material is going to be used. Yes, we get the Linda Eastman and Ethan Russell photography et al. And we get more stock footage of the band that's cut in masterfully. But what really interested me this time around was Jackson's use of newspaper clippings, aka the articles that the Beatles were reading at the time, as well as his seemingly unfettered access to the Beatles' own private home movies from Rishi Kesh. Like, there's this one bit on the last day where Paul is reminiscing about the whole India trip and he's talking about the home movies that he was watching the night before and we cut back and forth between said home movies and and Paul describing it and you know we actually get to see it it's just so fucking cool literally every time Paul mentions a shot whether it's John walking with Maharishi or some humping monkeys it cuts right to it and it fortifies just how candid and unexpectedly open as well as just how all-encompassing this film is. Again, no stones left unturned, no expense spared. Like, any time Jackson is presented with an opportunity to explain something in greater visual detail to the audience, he does so, and with gusto. Of course, before we get into the, the review in earnest, I'm just going to point out that I'm not going to be doing the same level of detail with the technical elements as it really would just be me retreading old ground and you know folks how much of an effort that is for me as I do love to pad out an episode needlessly but yeah straight away let me tell you that again the film stock in this film looks incredible which was especially cool as there's a whole sequence towards the end of the film where the Beatles are talking about 16mm and 35mm film and this looks like it was shot on neither of them again amazing likewise the film sounds incredible and for the period where not only do we get to move to a recording studio, but also the songs start coming together, it sounds even better than the first part. Like, you know, not only is this A, more appropriate thematically, but B, it also gives that greater sense of nostalgic familiarity to the audience as we are getting closer and closer audibly to the Let It Be that we know and love. Finally, I cannot continue without mentioning the Beatles' fashion again, albeit briefly, but yeah, these guys look immeasurably cool here. And now that they aren't in the cold, cavernous Twickenham studios, they actually get to wear stuff that isn't just polo sweaters and jumpers all the time, and we get all sorts of cool, kooky, quirky outfits from them here. And a lot more colour too. Huge shout out to George's, what I can only describe as flower power Ugg boots. You'll know them when you see them. So yeah. Overall, the film that we get from this part two is one of joy. I mean, of course, the first part was far more positive and joyous than we ever really would have expected, but we all know things were going to improve once we got to Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. But I really wasn't mentally, physically, spiritually prepared for just how much of a feel-good film this ultimately was. Though, the first section of this documentary, say the first hour or so, is essentially a continuation of part one, as it's, you know, the, the same kind of dour tone, it's, it's continuing on that same downer ending, as well as, you know, still remaining at Twickenham, 
we get the Beatles dealing with the departure of George, how to get him back and what their next move is. And I know I'll be in the minority here, but I honestly love this section the most out of this entire episode because it was far more revealing about the Beatles themselves as people, their behind-the-scenes machinations, and an exploration of their actual dynamic, you know, rather just being about the music. You know, arguably I learned more in this segment than in any other individual hour of these two episodes so far. Especially about how the Beatles actually felt about each other, how they function as a group, how much they needed each other, and how invested they were in this project as a group. Truly fascinating stuff. Also, it means that since we are without George for so long, when he does ultimately return, a bit like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, uh, <laughs> you know, like the Beatles themselves, you are absolutely elated when you first see him. His return is like he is literally back from the dead, again, like Lord of the Rings. And since he's been absent for so long, not only is it just dramatically effective in terms of filmmaking, but it, it reinforces just how important George was to the band. You know, this apparently unappreciated third wheel is, you know, presented to us, and yet when he walks out, Everyone is sat around morose, and in Paul's case, literally almost in tears. The entire show is up in the air, the future of the band is in question, and, you know, everyone, Beatles and crew alike, are only talking about George. You know, we get that um, John line in the last film, oh, we'll just get Clapton in. You know, in this film, you really realise just how flippant and silly he was being there. Now, this is something that Jackson did in the last episode, but he really kicks it up a gear here, and that is to put you in the mindset of the Beatles themselves. You know, there's a lot of empathy in this movie, and he gets you to feel the emotions they themselves were feeling at the time. Not only is this just a really interesting exercise in terms of putting you in the headspace of four of the most talented, famous people of all time, but it's a masterful use of catharsis, as you will regularly get excited when they do. You'll get sad when they do. It's really powerful stuff. And since there's an even greater uh, percentage of positive to negative moments in this film, you know, even than, than the last one, the, the result is just a sequence of big smile moments for the audience. Not just because they are smiling on screen and you're copying them, but because you are directly happy at the events unfolding for the reasons that they are. Speaking of George, since he was so instrumental in the move to Abbey Road and the removal of Magic Alex's equipment, there is also this segment around halfway through where we really start to blow through several days in a way that you never really saw in the first instalment. As before, we still have the chronological calendar counting down the days, but there are at least two instances where either rehearsals are cancelled or renovations are being done, and before you know it, we've already blasted past the January 18th date set up in part one, and now we move on to this whole new world where things are seemingly more stable because everyone's enjoying themselves, but there's this tense uncertainty, you know. There is this sense that it's all come together, but you also have the studio change, the clashes with Glyn Johns, the equipment failures, the failure to find a new venue and create some sort of grandiose ending for the film. And whilst there isn't a singular foreboding date of January to loom over their heads and provide the tension on its own, there are lots of little hiccups 
that still provide the same level of suspense. So yeah, on to the good stuff. And the first part of it comes in the form of a certain building, aka Abbey Road Studios. And finally, after three hours of the frankly alien terrain of Twickenham, we get to come back to good old terra firma. And from this point onwards, the entire mood of the dock just changes. Like, uh, a pall of darkness is lifted. But yeah, we were already pretty happy when George came back in part one, like I say, was happier than we expected. But again here, Jackson puts us in the Beatles' shoes and you genuinely feel the sense of coming home to the familiar and warmth and security that the Beatles would have felt in that moment. I mean, as you see Abbey Road Studios for the first time, you're just struck by how cosy and bright and welcoming the place is. I mean, you even have that dark green crimple carpet that could almost pass for grass, and you instantly know that the Beatles are going to be on more, pardon the pun, fertile ground. Going back to the last episode, when I say that Jackson and his editor must have had a file simply titled Smiles, well, they must have opened that file a bunch here, because from this point onwards, right up until the end, really, it's nothing but smiles. Before we do get to the fun Abbey Road recordings, we do get a few snippets of some Georgeless noodlings and rehearsals and stuff like that. And, you know, we do know that there were other recordings with the Threetles prior to the move, but what Jackson does here is really pile on and hammer home just how little music was being done at this point. You know, useful music, good music, music with George. And so when you finally do go to Abbey Road and things kick back into gear, oh my God, it's such a thrill. Like... Whereas part one was a little stop and start, once Glynn, or Glynis, as John calls him, and, you know, when he finally gets the studio up and running, there really isn't all that much time for conversation, and we are just off to the races. You know, it's just song after song, classic after classic, and it'll leave you speechless. It really will. As always, though, we get a massive range of songs in this film. Again, the majority of which does not feature on the 50th anniversary box set for a variety of reasons, but we really should have all made our peace with that by now, and it is to be expected. We get songs like I Bought a Piano the Other Day, which is quite possibly the only McCartney-Starkey composition I can think of, a McCartney ditty called Woman, you get a very jokey solo take of The Backseat of My Car, you get a song called Song of Love, which is apparently a Lennon McCartney original. There's Mean Mr. Mustard, a Lennon song that I'd never heard before that they do revisit later called Madman. You get more Oh Darling, a little impromptu jam of You Are My Sunshine. Then they do a load of rockers, including New Orleans, Queen of the Hop, Gilly Gilly Offenpfeffer, Cats and Nellen, Bogan by the Sea, 40 Days, another Lennon McCartney composition called Too Bad About Sorrow, there's loads of Digger Pony, you get My Baby Left Me, High Hill Sneakers, Hallelujah, I Love Her So, Milk Cow Blues, Good Rockin' Tonight, Blue Suede Shoes, uh, you get a, a song called Shout, but Lennon changes the lyrics to Shag, if I'm correct, loads of I've Got a Feeling, loads of Don't Let Me Down, Going Up to the Country, Save the Last Dance for Me, which was on the 50th anniversary box set. You get 20 Flight Rock. Of course, there's some Get Back. You get a very jokey take of Help and Please Please Me. You get some more of On the Road to Marrakesh. School Days, Ring Ring Goes the Bell. 
Stand By Me, loads of two of us as well. Polythene Pam, Her Majesty, Teddy Boy, Maggie May, Fancy Me Chances. A very, okay, a very brief section on Dig It. I would have thought there would have been a little bit more time on that. Lennon even bashes out I Feel Fine on his own at one point as they're all going home. Uh, day 16 opens with some Deradoon, which is great, as well as an early take of Within You, Without You. We get some Act Naturally, though sadly not with Ringo on the vocal. Yet Bye Bye Love, a song that Paul would one day produce on Denny Lane's Holidays. Lots of For You Blue as well. John sings I Lost My Little Girl. And then the film ends with a lot of work on Let It Be. Then in the credits for this film, we get a song just simply titled Blues Jam. Then we've got Paul's impromptu song, The Walk. We get Billy Preston's vocal with Without a Song. And then you get a song that I really wish had been included on the 50th anniversary box set, which is their piss take version of Love Me Do. Of course, the first recordings at Abbey Road are not perfect, and whether you could consciously point out why, you can still feel that something is missing. They mentioned it in part one, they mentioned it at the start of this second instalment, and that's the idea of an additional musician to handle the piano during the rock numbers so that they don't lose a guitar. And as you also should really know by this point, there is a person who would go on to fill in those shoes... And his name is Billy Preston. And, I mean, Jesus Christ on a bike. The moment Billy joins the proceedings and starts playing with them, again, you feel the same kind of exhilaration and excitement that the Beatles were feeling themselves. Because it literally all just falls into place. Like, as soon as he sits on that electric piano, so many of the songs that were only sounding kind of like 70% correct and familiar suddenly leap into being these exact songs we know and love you know songs like get back and don't let me down if peter jackson was the standout non-beatle player for the first installment then billy preston was the definite top persona in this second part as literally every scene he is in is one where you're, you're just beaming with joy as to how these sessions are finally coming together and you just are unable to not appreciate him as an incredible musical talent I also love how there is no talk of Billy supposedly being the Eric Clapton of these sessions, you know, whereby George brings him in to make sure the other Beatles are behaving themselves. No, as revealed in the doc, Billy pops by to say hi, and then suddenly he just finds himself playing for and with the Beatles and being the only person to ever be fucking credited on their albums. Like, it's a wonderful bit of randomness, I guess, you know, it just shows that it was all very much real. Also, going back to the last episode and talking about how tempting all of the smoking was, i got to say, Billy always having a cigarette in his mouth is the main offender in this segment. While we're talking about Abbey Road, I just want to point out the stuff where the Beatles were mocking and reading the news, uh, and the tabloids was a real highlight for me. There were at least two standout moments whereby... The Beatles would be reading through the headlines of the day and dissect them and ridicule them and point out the falsehoods that lie in them. Like, for all the obvious lessons that they were to learn about the media, what was truly interesting was the fact that we got to see the subjects of such tabloid journalism reading the salacious 
lies in real time, as everyone else was. You get Lennon asking their press agent, Derek Taylor, whether it's worth suing over. You get the Beatles turning the sarcastic readings of said articles into spoken word poetry jams, which are just absolutely amazing bouts of creativity and spontaneity. And, of course, a whole load of sarcastic comedy. I mean, yeah... The Beatles are just on top form comedically throughout this documentary again. You know, I think that goes without saying at this point. But yeah, it was easily one of the highlights of the doc for me because it's something that you just don't see and hasn't really been touched on in Beatle lore all that much either. So let's get into the idea of whitewashing again because, of course, it wasn't going to go away just because we moved on to episode two now, was it? And I think we've already kind of established that purely just because Jackson makes the Beatles not seem like they want to stab each other in the face with knives constitutes as whitewashing. And the same goes for this one. I mean, if you took some enjoyment out of the parts of collaboration in the last movie, then prepare to be blown away by the in-depth, equally candid sequences of the band working on their music in a nicer environment. Once again, not only do you get to hear the songs in their earlier stages, but you get the privilege of the interperformance chatter where you witness the fact that they do ask direct and practical questions to figure out problems with these songs. It doesn't just all fall into place. And if you're one of those people that likes the McCartney line of, oh, it's all just magic, then don't watch this series because it shows that they're not gods, just godlike human beings who are very clever, know how to structure songs. You know, they reference other songs, they talk about changing up their own ones in a variety of different ways, they're so open to suggestion, you know, whether it's Lennon constantly changing the lyrics for Digger Pony, the whole band discussing how many verses, choruses and solos are going to be in Get Back, John and Paul deciding to do two of us on acoustic guitar, or just the lot of them trying to get that perfect take of Let It Be, you know, you see the four lads knuckling down, doing their job, but all whilst having a blast, of course. Something else you get in this doc that was absent from the Twickenham stuff is the Beatles going back to the recording booth and discussing the music they've literally just recorded and then returning to the studio to work on the improvements that they just discussed. Like, not only do you get to see them talk the talk of collaboration in this one, you get to see them walk the walk. Just following on from that point as well, and that's something I wanted to mention in the last episode, really, and like you know, especially in regards to something like Maxwell Silver Hammer, is the fact that there is literally no evidence in this film of Paul's songs boring the other three Beatles. John and George constantly have suggestions for Paul's music and clearly enjoy being a part of those songs, even if, like, say, in the case of George's rhythm guitar on Get Back, their own part is really simple. Also, Just going back to the recording booth for a moment, something I never knew happened and was blown away to see was the fact that George, of all people, was the one who suggested that they release Get Back as a single and that they should work on it further to polish it up. Like, to see George so invested in a song where he just goes, was so revealing, so illuminating. Moving on from the Beatles as a group... I just wanted to focus on two other elements where Jackson really has changed my mind about this period without feeling cynically manipulated. You know, that notion is still as true as ever. And first of all, 
my main takeaway from this middle part doc that I, you know, as someone who has always flippantly called Lennon a heroined out, uninterested, unmotivated loser who never brought the goods during these sessions, I was amazed at how wrong that notion is and how silly I was being. A bit flippant there, Sam. I know it's a little gauche to point out how brave you are for admitting you are wrong, but fuck me, I was wrong. And by a country mile, too. It's absolutely crazy how engaged Lennon is throughout this part of the documentary. You know, you expect Lennon to be smacked out and non-engaging whatsoever, and, you know, George has to throw him for you blues slide guitar stuff to keep him interested. And yeah, there is an element that this might just have been edited out by Jackson to present the most positive light on these sessions possible, but it certainly doesn't feel that way. Um, I know that that's not the greatest bit of evidence ever, but I can still say with a guilt-free conscience that this is the second preconception about these sessions that Jackson series has irrevocably changed for me. Across this entire episode, despite the fact that John has brought very little to the sessions in the way of new songs, he's still a major player in how all of them are composed, constructed, and even criticised. Like, regardless of how much you felt like he contributed, you, you, you will not leave this episode without knowing that he was totally committed to the outcome. He still wanted to do the live show at one point. He's still invested in this album and in the Beatles. Like, whether it's him chiming in on how he wants Ringo to play a particular drum line or how intently he's listening to Paul as to how he wants him to play the electric piano once she came in through the bathroom window, John is there, he's ready to be a fucking Beatle, and for me, that was breathtaking. Also, leading on from John, um, we do get to hear more of the secret microphone in the plant pot conversation at that lunchtime between him and Paul. And it's pretty mad how much John sticks up for George here. You know, we always feel like, you know, John did George dirty or like he was just manipulating him or he'd always look down on him as the younger baby George of the group. But John really fights for George's corner here and he does stand up to Paul a lot more than you would have expected. And, and like, you know, there there are moments when, like, John's talking about, like, you know, his only motivations uh, in the band at certain points are self-preservation, and he's worried that, you know, Paul's arrangements or orchestrations end up changing songs in ways that, that the band never wanted. And you can kind of hear Paul going, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, I, I hear that. And you just know he's not quite taking it in. It, it was brilliant stuff. Uh, again... Revealing, illuminating, all these words that I'm going to be overusing a lot in these reviews. On a little side note, it's also mad how few of the classic Lennon quips are from the downer Twickenham sessions. And, you know, just moving to a nicer venue, suddenly John's coming out and firing on all cylinders. You know, so many of the famous Let It Be little fly-on-the-wall comments are all from these Abbey Road sessions. There's also a funny little running gag throughout these uh, sessions as well where John always looks to the camera and says, like, and your host for this evening, ladies and gentlemen, X, you know, whether it's the Blue Bottles or the Rolling Stones or something like that. It's clear that John is just this (laughs) maverick wildcard here who's really having fun with the fact that there's a documentary crew there. 
I will say, though, rather predictably, there is no mention of Lennon's heroin addiction. Probably a major uh, instruction from Apple to Jackson. But John does allude to, like, having gotten too fucked up and high and wasted a whole weekend. And, yeah, that could be weed, but the dates line up, so I will make one little assumption on my own part here. Now, the other preconception I had about these sessions was in terms of the production, and that this was the Glyn John show at first, with Phil Spector coming in at the end. However, something that this film does highlight, even if it's not its main intent, is to show that George Martin wasn't just on the sidelines, and that he was actually present for far more of these recordings than I had any idea. You know, I'd heard all the stories about Abbey Road and how the Beatles wanted to do it with George Martin like they did in the old days, and I assumed that that was because he was a persona non grata during these recordings. Well, Peter Jackson proves that that's not true, and it's totally extraordinary how present George Martin was during the recording of Let It Be. He's there to give tips, he's there to give encouragement to the Beatles, he's there to help with the equipment, and he's even there to give sly digs to Glyn Johns, which I thought was quite funny. And most importantly, he's there to oversee things in general. You know, he's not steering the ship or contributing directly in the way that he once was, but if they needed him, he was there, and that's something that previous documents on this era have entirely failed to comment on. Okay, I know I've already gone into quite a bit more detail than I intended to, especially when compared to the last episode, but I really do have to give one final huge shout-out to what many will consider to be the very best part of the film. Towards the end, after loads of excellent Abbey Road jamming and recording, and basically the uh, Primrose Hill location for the live show has been cancelled, and you get that classic cinematic downer just before the conflict resolution at the end of the third act, at this point, Jackson takes off his fanboy hat and puts on his director's hat. We then cut to everyone with their heads in their hands and wondering what to do. And since you slash we all know that they will eventually indeed land on the idea of the rooftop, you're just on the edge of your seat, eager as to how they figure it out. And then you get this incredible shot that I never knew existed, where you can tell the instant that Glyn Johns and Michael Lindsay Hogg have suggested the idea for the rooftop concert. You see them whisper something into Paul's ear, and the smile you see on Paul's face as all the pistons and synapses in his mind just start firing, and the smile on his face, it's just magnificent. It's so fucking perfect. It's pure cinema, and I was just transfixed. Once again, Jackson has created a great cliffhanger for the end of this second instalment, and like his Lord of the Rings series, he knows how to keep us on tender hooks to get us up and back for a third instalment. Right, uh, before I close things out with another generalised review, I just want to touch on something that I spoke about on the last episode, and that's how this film, these films, this series, blah blah blah, interacts with the Get Back Coffee Table book. And yes, it did take me longer to write this episode, purely because I kept checking back to the book all the time, but rather interestingly, when I had it by my side, I could tell that the companion book was not an entire word-for-word -word transcription, not only because of the erratic way people really speak, but in the sense that it does leave certain things out, which I was a bit shocked at, really. But it all came around because 
I also realised that it contains stuff not seen in the final movie, and so actually gives greater insights and a more 3D view of the events in the film. So when used together, you just get the best possible narrative, really. And I don't know whether this has anything to do with the re-edits of the movie or whether this was intentional from the get-go. I will definitely have to drop Callaway Publishing a quick email to find the answer out to that. But yeah, folks, here we are. We are two episodes down now with one to go, and I've no doubt in my mind that part three is going to be just as illustrious and as candid, as informative, and as brilliant as the first two. I cannot overstate how much I enjoyed this episode and how excited I am for the final one. This isn't just some piece of throwaway fluff that's going to be forgotten in five or ten years, maybe even after new stuff has come to light and been released. This truly is the real deal. And again, this is going to be considered, nay, lauded, as a part of the official Beatles canon for the rest of the time. Jackson has masterfully crafted what I know will be many f- people's favourite Beatles series ever. I know it's a little too early to make this claim, and it's a little cruel, but I can totally see this usurping the original Michael Lindsay Hogg cut to the point whereby I reckon the only home release we will have of that film will be as a bonus featured disc on a Blu-ray or tucked away somewhere on Disney Plus rather than being its own individual home release. But that really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, really. We knew that Jackson was an immeasurable talent when it came to the process of documentary filmmaking with his World War One doc and They Shall Not Grow Old, but the sheer unbridled objective quality of this series means that It's going to rival his Lord of the Rings films in terms of everyone's favourite Peter Jackson trilogy. Although we all know, even by part two, that this is going to be better than the Hobbit trilogy. Again, I really cannot stress enough how fucking awesome this is. It's a masterclass of filmmaking, it looks beautiful, it sounds incredible, and you get to spend three hours, four hours, watching your four favourite mop tops just doing their thing and doing it well. I have... Been, I'm so glad that I booked my time off work to watch all of this in real time and you know, take my time with watching it and making my notes and doing these reviews because it really deserves it. It is one of the best things ever to come out for the Beatles, probably since like the anthology films, you know. This is a deep dive of unparalleled access. They really were telling the truth when they said that this is going to be a big deal because it is. If we're going to be doing reviews again, I'd give this one definitely four and a half stars out of five. You know, something closer to a 94, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes if we're doing that kind of thing. I, I This was incredible, folks. And, you know, I do prefer The Two Towers to Return of the King, so I can imagine I'll probably still prefer this one than the final part, especially if the final part mostly is just the rooftop concert but we'll have to wait and find out and you'll have to stick around for the next part of these reviews as we are done thank you so much folks for listening to another episode of paul or nothing that was my review of disney's peter jackson's the beatles get back days eight through 16 aka episode two out of three 
Let me know what you thought of it, folks. You know, like I say, I want to get a dialogue of this going. I want to read out a whole bunch of emails when we get to the Get Back Book episode. Can't wait to talk about that in more detail either. But yeah, let me know your thoughts, your own hot takes, your interpretations of this. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Leave us a like, subscribe, all that jazz. Please consider becoming one of our wonderful Patreon patrons. I'm sure Danny Lane has already started playing us out by now. But yeah, um, sorry, this one took a little bit longer to come out than the first one. It wasn't quite as on the ball as I had hoped, but I had friends who came round. And uh, I mean, of course, they, they didn't want to watch this film, but I did at least bore them with constant conversation about it but yeah this has been done on the morning of part three and now that i'm done with this i'm just going to go watch said part three i'm really excited uh, thank you so much for listening to paul or nothing folks keep listening to paul keep listening to the beatles peace and love peace and love harry harry krishna no more interviews play us out Danny. Oh, I, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, let's say we got a really yeah. good one of Love Me Do. Well, yeah, uh, yeah that's true. Okay.